everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dayson Digest. I'm liaison pharmacist Libby Dodds-Ashley, and I'm excited to have one of the Duke Dayson team with us here today, Rebecca Maureen, to talk about a recent paper that was released from our group. Importantly, it not only includes work at Duke Hospital and from within our Dayson data, but this was an actively engaging protocol that included many Dayson member hospitals, including Wilson, Iredell, Piedmont Fayette, Piedmont Noonan, Piedmont Atlanta, and Southeastern Health. We are so excited to share these results with you today, and thank you for taking the time to sit down with us, Rebecca. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me, and I just would like to echo just the huge, huge gratitude I have for the participation from all of the DASON sites that really made this research so much more robust and so much more generalizable to a wider audience of stewards. Yes, so to start off, the title is Evaluation of an Opt-out Protocol for Antibiotic De-Escalation in Patients with Suspected Sepsis, a Multicenter Randomized Control Trial. Now, this was exciting because I think, and I believe, this is the first and only patient-level randomized stewardship trial that's done in a multi-center fashion, and certainly that's done in smaller rural hospitals. So a really big deal about that. I want to ask you though, you decided to study sepsis. Did we have data from within our DASON network? And I know there were a few hospitals outside of DASON that told us what antibiotic use was in response to SEP1. We hear that all the time at DASON hospitals. Ever since we've had to do the sepsis measure, it's driving more patients to get antibiotics and it's hard to get them off. So do we have baseline data that that was a problem for us? Yeah, so I think like that's what's so special about detours is like this problem was actually identified from within Dason and kind of expressed to us and that made us really pursue um, down this course. Um, there's kind of two papers that um, we have that we can cite that shows the effect of step one. One of them, um, Dev uh, Anderson actually is first author on um, and that took um, DASON sites as well as some academic sites data just retrospectively and looked at the trends of antibiotic use before and after the step one implementation in October of 2015, which seems like a long, long time ago <laughs> at this point. Um, but in that paper, um, we actually saw that the trend for antibiotic use, especially like broader spectrum antibiotic use was already kind of going up in the pre-implementation period at a pretty steep um, trend. And then after the like start date for step one, it kind of leveled off uh, right there. So it really to us um, said that like hospitals were really preparing for the implementation um, and kind of already getting some of their sepsis work like implemented and rolled in before that um, rollout date. The other paper um, that showed that was actually from the Vizient data. Um, so Amy Packus is the first um, author on that, and it was in CID uh, also within the last couple of years, I think 21. And that actually took observational data from like over 100 hospitals that participate in Vizient and saw similarly that associated with the um, rollout of SEP1 that just the, not the amount of um, broad spectrum antibiotic use actually jumped up in their trends rather than kind of like the slow uptrend that we had leading up to the date. The other thing that we found in our paper was that the sepsis diagnosis, so like just looking at ICD codes for sepsis, that also went up in that pre-implementation phase. And then we also saw actually a mortality decrease over the time period, but that trend way predated SEP1. So it was already kind of going down in a pretty steep tent for mortality 
probably related to a lot of factors. So if there's not clear data that step one improved mortality, um, although that obviously is kind of the goal um, to improve the way that we treat patients with sepsis, um, but we do know that it increased use of broad spectrum antibiotics um, just from our observational data. So, um, so this trial was really designed to try and balance that. As we know, like step one has all these criteria for measuring lactates and starting antibiotics quickly, um, but it doesn't have a kind of balancing component that like really makes us reassess for antibiotic de-escalation, despite the fact that the sepsis guidelines clearly say every day reevaluate your patient for antibiotic de-escalation. We know that just doesn't happen reliably once the sepsis trigger has been pulled. Thank you. So clearly we saw there was a problem. It bore out in the data. It wasn't just something that we thought we were seeing. Um, and then we decided to all work together on this intervention. The DASON liaisons were part of designing it as well. But the intervention I, I think is pretty interesting. You know, this, we call the study detours and we call it the opt-out study. But it was a little bit more complicated than that. It was actually a five component intervention that happened on intervention day. Can you tell everyone about the details of how you approached these patients who had started antibiotics for sepsis, how you found them, and then what you did to make sure that they were appropriate to de-escalate? Yeah, so I think this is a, an important part of the study because uh, you know our focus was sepsis, but it's actually the people who don't have sepsis were the ones that we were trying to find the lowest hanging fruit that we could imagine from a de-escalation standpoint. So these are patients that actually, you know, maybe the sepsis trigger was pulled, um, but they they actually turned out to be a sepsis rule out or like didn't actually have infection or didn't have severe enough infection to cause a sepsis syndrome. And that probably was attributed to something else. So the first step was just looking for eligible patients. And so that first step, we were looking at non-ICU patients because we're trying to find our sepsis rule outs. Patients who had blood cultures were still on antibiotics, but those blood cultures hadn't shown any pathogen at like a 48 to 96 hour period. So um, at each site, we basically pulled a list of patients with blood cultures who remained on antibiotics and then just looked at that time period and where they were housed. So in a non-ICU unit, and that kind of got them past that first eligibility screen. Then the second um, screening part was to ensure safety. So this was a big deal because this is a very practical kind of on the ground application um, and it is a clinical trial. Um, and since the level of intervention was really gonna be in talking to clinicians instead of like enrolling and consenting patients, we had to be really 100% sure that we weren't gonna cause any safety issues um, with this. So that made us really kind of uh, go to the extreme of like trying to exclude any patients where we felt there may be a potential safety risk. So that safety check component included actually 23 items. And if anybody failed one item, they didn't move on in the protocol. Um, and they kind of went um, on about their business as uh, cared for in the hospital. And we can go into some of the details on that in a minute. The third was just a randomization button. They went either to the intervention or um, kind of usual care. Um, and then the fourth was an, the opt-out discussion. So this was um, basically um, modeled after what we typically do for a pharmacist-led um, protocolized decision-making, similar to like IV to PO switches, where you, know, you screen the patient for criteria and then um, just inform and have a discussion with the clinician or 
text page or whatever to uh, try to uh, switch somebody over to oral therapy. So kind of in that same idea, this was a verbal discussion. So had to have a response from the primary um, provider um, to have a discussion to say, you know, your patient um, passed this initial screening um, and safety check um, and antibiotics should be stopped unless you opt out. And they were basically asked if they want to opt out and continue antibiotics. If they said, yes, the antibiotics need to be continued, then we went on to have a further discussion about de-escalation where um, the provider was asked, you know, what their rationale was for continuing antibiotics, what type of infection they were treating, um, and um, if uh, they had a plan for antibiotic de-escalation, narrowing, or duration. Um, so just getting them to verbalize what that plan was, um, was part of this intervention itself. That safety check sounds pretty comprehensive. How did you develop it? You know, what were all the steps that went into making it? And then um, what were kind of some of the biggest things you might have had to change along the way? Yeah. So the safety check, as I said, um, we prioritize the safety as kind of like the highest priority when we were making this. So we actually assembled an expert panel, um, folks that work with us, with, with CDC, CDC members. And then actually um, we had some panel members from the perspective study site. So folks from our DASON sites participated in this, especially like the folks in Atlanta, um, and uh, it included both critical care doctors as well as um, ID folks um, and pharmacists as well. So everyone kind of weighed in on um, the criteria that we came up with. We went through two rounds of kind of vetting through this expert panel um, and kind of voting on, you know, would it be safe to stop antibiotics in this particular clinical scenario? Um, and we kind of narrowed it down to this 23 item um, safety checklist that ultimately went into the protocol. And that is all, that whole process is uh, detailed in a publication in ASHI with uh, Mike Earrington as the first author. Um, it has a very nice figure to try and summarize that in the paper. Um, was it easy for you to find patients who met the criteria, you know, got through the safety check, still on antibiotics at 48 yeah. to 96 hours? I think this was certainly like a, a learning point for us is, you know, as stewards, we're like, we, we only see the opportunities. <laughs> and so as we, we were like, oh, these people are everywhere. They don't have sepsis and they need their antibiotics stopped. Um, but when we actually went through this rigorous safety check, you know, uh, really, you know, looking at a hospitalized population, um, a lot of people have a lot going on. Um, and so when you try to uh, apply this, it, it ended up that we enrolled just a, a little bit of the amount that we screened. So we screened a ton of people, um, over 9,000 folks kind of in that initial eligibility screen at first. And then we enrolled uh, 767. So that ended up being about 8% um, of the screen population. So it was a very selected population that uh, went into the study. What were the most common reasons that they did fail a safety check? Yeah, so the most common one, which was a little bit of a surprise to us when we went into it, was that patients were getting antibiotics before their, their blood cultures, <laughs> um, which is not what the goal ever was for our folks being evaluated by sepsis. It's always get the blood cultures, then start the antibiotics. Um, so we were actually, you know, looking at the wider hospital population. Um, a lot of our blood cultures are collected 
after patients are on antibiotics. Um, and so that was a bit of a surprise to us and that kind of the number one, I think that uh, went into the high 20s in terms of the percent of patients we screened that had um, one of the safety track criteria. The second one is just that we actually had a positive culture. Um, so you would hope that a lot of patients on antibiotics in the hospital have a positive culture, but it ended up being about a quarter. And then the third one is that um, we included a, a abnormal chest x-ray um, as one of the criteria to exclude patients. And just there's just a huge number of patients in the hospital that have abnormal chest x-rays for a variety of reasons, um, infectious and otherwise. So excluding that population also kind of took out a big, a big chunk of the screened folks. Is there anything you learned from looking at all those patients who were opted out that that might be a learning point for stewards if someone's trying to do a similar intervention at their own hospital? Is there something you tweak around those chest x-rays or another factor yeah. that you feel like that really hurt us but didn't necessarily yeah. hurt the patient? Yeah. So, I mean, I think because the safety uh, was the priority, we certainly left a lot on the table in terms of stewardship opportunity. Um, so even as we were going through the study um, and the folks at uh, the study sites were reviewing these charts, they still, you know, even if the patient didn't make it into the study, they still were able to kind of like do a pretty deep chart review and look for opportunities um, with that patient. Um, so I still think there's there's opportunity for post-description review and intervention, even if you don't pass this like rigorous safety check. Um, in terms of tweaking, I can get into that. I do have a lot of ideas on that. Um, I you know, one critique of this is just that we were too conservative in terms of the selection of, of the patients here. Um, and also just that the number of items on that safety check was, was lengthy. So actually doing that takes a lot of resource intervention. And I don't really know that like a lot of those things happen often enough to really make that part of your daily work as a steward. Um, so uh, there's that. And then there's the data collection part, which is always, uh, you know, a high resource investment. So I would think that we could come up with a subset of those uh, criteria to try and identify that low hanging fruit, um, hopefully use some EHR tools to rapidly identify those instead of having to come through charts um, and then have that as a priority for our post-description review activity um, and intervention. Um, so yeah, I thought the number was too much. I think we were leaving stuff on the table there. That's very helpful. You know, I think if to sort of put it out there, at least that we don't have to avoid these sepsis patients for stewardship interventions because yeah. they're excluded from some lists. So that's that's just a huge step forward. Um, so the exciting part, what did you find? Were you able to stop antibiotics for those patients who made it through the safety check and randomized? You know, what 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 were the results? Yeah, so we were able to show that we could stop antibiotics. Um, on the day that the patient were enrolled. So like the outcome, the primary outcome of the study was just post-enrollment um, days of therapy. So um, that, uh, and only antibiotics, not like antifungals and things like that. Um, and so basically the day they were enrolled, we started counting that outcome the day after. So if the antibiotic was stopped the day of enrollment, they basically had a zero um, for their primary outcome. Um, and because this population was pretty uh, well selected, so what we found was that um, uh, when we measured like who had antibiotics continued versus not, um, the antibiotics were continued more frequently in uh, the control group, um, about 85% of the time 
versus in the intervention group, they were only continued 79% of the time. So we, we increased the number of patients that had their antibiotics stopped with the intervention. And that was about a third lower odds of um, antibiotic continuation. Um, so yeah, so I mean, like one in five <laughs> patients having their antibiotics stopped doesn't seem like a huge um, impact, but it was for people that were kind of labeled as sepsis and on broad um, antibiotics, certainly had an impact there. When we looked at patients who had their antibiotics continued after that, there wasn't a lot of difference in that kind of distribution of days of therapy among the patients who had antibiotics continued though, um, but comparing between groups. So we stopped more antibiotics with the intervention, um, but the overall like days of therapy among the patients that had antibiotic continued wasn't that different. Got you. Something we've taken a lot of interest in DASON recently, and I know you've done previous work in and included in this project, was the use of a spectrum score. So our last podcast episode and actually the September 2022 DASON newsletter were all about spectrum scores. And you looked at that a little bit here. Was there any difference in sort of the breadth of therapy that the patients were getting after, if they continued after the intervention? Yeah. So um, we had developed this kind of antibiotic rank system. It's just a simple four-point scale based on what we consider as stewards to be like the most protected agents that we try to avoid, um, except for special cases versus the narrowest agents would be like a rank one. And so when we looked at between control and intervention, we found that um, there were less patients exposed to those higher broad um, spectrum antibiotics, those rank three antibiotics in the intervention arm. So we were able to narrow um, and have less broad spectrum exposure in the intervention arm. Um, we also actually applied our de-escalation score and saw about similar like 5% difference between the intervention and control um, in terms of how many patients were de-escalated by day five after enrollment. That's great. And it's always wonderful to see and be able to actually show people that this is really sort of the juice is worth the squeeze of doing these stewardship interventions because we can change therapy in these patients um, started for sepsis with negative cultures. Now, I know from having had a sort of spectator view of the study while it was happening and then having it happen in one of uh, the days on hospitals that I cover, it, the study wasn't without challenges. And that's one thing we really like to do with this podcast is bring that to our stewards and say, what? What would you do differently? What were your biggest challenges? If you had to start over again, what do you wish you had known? So what were your, your sort of top three things that you encountered during the study? Yeah, so I mean, I think we've already talked about one of them is just like the resources that it took to actually screen and get um, to this like uh, safest population to do the intervention on. Um, and the amount of time that it takes to kind of comb through a chart. I think that's a very common limitation to a lot of what we do in stewardship in general, especially with um, when we're trying to intervene after antibiotics have been started. It's the chart digging through the chart biopsy time that we use. Um, so it's a common challenge in a lot of our uh, strategies and, and not necessarily unique to this one. Um, and I think there's ways for us to get around that, um, to try and like look at, things to get our EHRs to help us provide tools that get us to that low hanging fruit and help us like shuffle our patients, the ones that are going to benefit the most um, from our reviews. Um, the second is just one that uh, I think is also common is stewardship and, and basically every uh, aspect of uh, clinical medicine is just like getting a hold of people and communicating. Um, one of the things we looked at with this study is just like, you know, of the folks that were intervened upon, like, did we get a callback? Could we intervene before the patient was discharged? 
Um, and we had a few that uh, did fall out, like the patient was discharged before we could get the provider on the phone. Um, it didn't happen too commonly. Um, and we included those patients, even if we weren't able to intervene on them um, in that like intention to treat analysis, the whole analysis. So we included the like practicality part and looking at the effect. Um, but that always kind of is a challenge. It's just getting people on the phone and the communication um, part of it. Um, and then I think the third thing is that uh, we found, even though we were trying to be really careful about getting this like lowest hanging fruit sepsis rollout population, people still had real indications for antibiotics, even though we like went through this uh, safety screen. Um, so again, you know, the goal is not always to stop antibiotics if your patient needs it, is <laughs> to try to get them the right antibiotic, the narrow spectrum and the correct duration um, to be effective. Um, so there were still uh, good reasons for people to be on antibiotics, even though they got through uh, this screen. So uh, I think for me, that was just um, another learning point is that like, even though, you know, our goal is to try and stop antibiotics when they're not needed, we still need to keep in mind that there are a ton of people in our hospital that still need it. And we need to be careful about um, the, the way that we're pushing and discussing these patients. Great. I'm curious, did you have any sites, um, speaking to the issue of communication, did any sites develop a unique way to address it, like incorporating uh, the intervention into interdisciplinary teaching rounds or something? Yeah, so um, we basically allowed uh, each site to kind of develop what was best for them. I would say that for our pharmacists that were kind of leading the charge here, um, a, a lot of them use their usual communication strategy of kind of uh, paging and response like through phone. Um, but others use different strategies of like face-to-face -face discussions. And I know that that is, um, you know, to me, uh, working the face-to-face -face is always more effective um, uh, and uh, it helps you develop a relationship with the patient, with the person you're speaking with. Um, but really, you know, in the practicality of like a busy um, clinical setting, it's whatever work, work, whatever way that you can communicate. Um, in terms of specific um, strategies used, I'd have to ask the stewards at each site to say like how they work to this in. Um, but uh, it was really a part of their daily work and their daily activities as they were doing their stewardship activities. Well, great. Thank you so much for giving us some additional insight. As we close, what we always ask everyone is, you know, sometimes when you pick up a paper and you think about implementing a, this intervention in your stewardship program, it can seem overwhelming because, you know, the way we have to do the trials. So what do you think about the practicality? What would be your biggest advice for a steward out there who wants to implement something similar around sepsis? Yeah, I think that the main thing is just to know that like there are to try and find your sepsis rollouts and then talk to your providers that are treating these patients and be like, we understand antibiotics were started because of the suspicion for sepsis, but now we're like two or three days in this, this guy doesn't have sepsis, does he? Um, what does he have? You know, um, he's resolved, things are good. Um, so let's narrow it down. Let's make a decision. Let's make let's let's um, make a move instead of kind of like staying in this like uh, sepsis train. <laughs> um, so I think like just recognizing that this is a clinical entity um, and a target uh, for folks to think through um, and using that 
that term um, actually helps in communicating that like there's a ton of people they're on antibiotics but really their antibiotic course should be two to three days when we've identified another reason for this um, hypotension or um, or this fever we've gotten control of the infection we need to go ahead and make a move um, I will say that um, the other, uh, I think, limiting thing about the way this intervention was developed is just that it really was a one-time thing um, where we know that kind of like it takes this um, relationship building, this like long-term kind of uh, understanding between the folks that you're talking to and the steward uh, to really be the most effective and those communication skills, I think, are something that we need to just as a field like further develop what that means and what the best strategies are for that i think that we you know we grew this very ground roots like oh we're gonna just go talk to people but what does that really mean like what does that interaction look like and what is the most effective way to communicate and talk through these patients um and so i think you know the one-time interventions when we've studied them similar to this the timeout interventions there really has been kind of like mixed results from those uh one-time things and so um i think either more than one intervention point um or uh, a more longitudinal approach is, is going to have much more effect than a one-time thing that's great well Thank you. Congratulations on getting this work published. We're all excited to see it. I know it was a tremendous effort for many um, here at the center um, over the several years of the project. So thanks for coming to the podcast and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, Libby.